Hi, doctor. Hi, dad. So I have a question for you. Can we lower our risk of Alzheimer's and dementia? <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> okay, um, good, good, good. That's, that's, yes. that's, that's the answer I was, I was looking for because there are so many people suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, a um, couple of people in, in our family, although we've been, you know, knock on wood, we've been pretty blessed in our family. Yeah. Um, so it's, I, I'd say it's, it's, it's kind of tinge. Uh, well, it's not direct family um, that have been, been impacted, but um, when you hear about those things and, and, and um, you know, that process, uh, not only is it really devastating, obviously for the person who has Alzheimer's dementia, but the care that, the, the caregivers, the family mm-hmm. members and friends, whatever. It's just, well, that's usually what it's the hardest uh, on. Cause the person who has dementia doesn't know. Yes. Yes. Um, but yes. we used to think the, the old thought process was, you know, there's really nothing you can do about it. Um, and that was probably even the thought process. Maybe when I was in med school was, you know, Hey, yeah, we probably have some potentially modifying risk factors, but all in all, you know, if, if this is in your genes and um, this is, you know, you've got a strong family history, you know, it's, there's, hopefully you don't get it, but there's not much you can do. But now um, I think that that has shifted pretty significantly. And we do know a lot more well-defined modifiable risk factors. So things you can do and things you should do early. Um, and we'll talk right. about it, but it, a lot of that also comes down to knowing what your risk is. Right, right. So let's let's talk about it. Well, let's talk about it in general. So obviously, you know, it's common knowledge that Alzheimer's dementia is um, is is on the rise, certainly in developed countries. Uh, but what I found interesting is the age specific incidence of dementia is is falling a bit, mm-hmm. um, which means because because essentially, you know, we have aging populations. So a greater popu- percent of the population is, let's say, 60 and older. Right. Um, so and and because age is the primary risk factor in developing this disease, then obviously you're you're likely to have more absolute cases. Right. But if you look at the percentage of people who are now, let's say, 70 who have um, the disease, it is a little bit less than it was five years ago, let's say. Yep. Which is we are awesome. We are getting better at um living longer and healthier. Yeah. And it it points to some of the things you're talking about around this maybe growing body of knowledge around what we might be able to do um, to control it or or what have you. So I'm curious, do you experience with patients with uh, the disease or, you know, uh, specific family members? Um, Yes, for sure. Um, There's a, a mix, um, a few patients, obviously, you know, with Alzheimer's dementia, patients who are getting older, who have signs of it, but, you know, there's not been like a formal clear diagnosis because, um, a lot of times it's kind of like a wait and see as, as patients get older, most of this is, you know, age related cognitive decline that is probably Alzheimer's dementia. Um, and then there's the family members who, sometimes it's a, the patient of mine is the family member is the patient of mine. Uh, and, yeah. you know, they're asking questions 
about, you know, how to, how to take care of their, their loved one or, and then once in a while, yeah, once in a while, then it's the proactive patient who's like, what can I do to prevent it? (laughs) And that's the, that's the, that's where you want to be. You want to be at the place where you're asking the question of, Hey, how can I um, make sure that, that I do everything I can to prevent this, but that is not the, the, you know, most common interaction I get with it. The norm. Well, and, and I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, or I'm guessing a lot of times if a patient asks you what can be done, it's because they've got some family history. Right. Yes. Or, or when we're talking through family history, it comes to light um, because some families don't have anything. Like I don't, we really don't have much family history at all of Alzheimer's dementia or dementia in general. As as you get to a certain age, there is always going to be some cognitive decline. Um, And that's not what we're really talking as much about here. But then there's other families where in their minds, it's just kind of like normal because it's riddled with people with what they just will term like dementia, which really is Alzheimer's. Um, And then those people, you, it's almost like you don't even need to do any genetic testing to find out if they're a carrier for the particular gene that we'll talk about um, because you just kind of know. So if you've got right. that many people, you know, th- throughout your family history with it, you guys obviously carry uh, the higher risk gene. So you're at more, you're more risk. And then there's the people in the middle who have like maybe one or two family members um, where maybe the testing becomes more um, useful. Yeah. So let's talk about that um, genetic influence before we talk about the things that we can control. Let's talk about something that we can't, which is obviously the genes that we were born with. Um, so um, talk to me about how, uh, what we've learned in that area. Um, so there's one big, there's tons of genes um, related to Alzheimer's disease and dementia, all kinds. Um, and that's way above um, even my understanding. But the most common is APOE, your APOE status. So you, everyone should Ideally, everyone should be aware of their APOE genes. It's something that's pretty easy to figure out, even with the um, direct-to-consumer genetic testing that you can do, like the 23andMe kind of things, mm-hmm. um, and, and or a blood test with your doctor. So you want to know your APOE status. So you inherit one, one of the genes or alleles from mom and one from dad. So you get two different copies, and you want to know which type of APOE you are, um, because it's really the first and biggest gene identified um, to have the strongest impact on your risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. So so everyone has an APOE gene. It's just a matter of which yep, type everyone has, of gene. Everyone has two, one yeah. from mom, one from dad. Um, but which variant of it you have is what differs and what confers right now the biggest risk of you getting alzheimer's dementia and then you know in the past it was like well why do we care about knowing it if you can't prevent it like why do i want to know that my risk is tenfold if i can't do anything about it well you wouldn't but you can do some stuff to to mitigate your risk so that's why you do um want to know and why this becomes more important because researchers estimate that half of people diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease have the APOE4 gene. So E4 is the one that's um, most closely correlated with the high risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, So obviously if you get one from both parents, if you inherit two of the E4, so your APOE4 
slash ApoE4. Those are your two. That's going to give you the highest risk. The highest risk. Yep. Yep. Um, so it's associated also not just with Alzheimer's dementia, but with an earlier age of onset, um, having one increases your risk and having two greatly increases your risk. There's also the other two, um, ApoE2 is pretty rare and might actually provide some protection against Alzheimer's dementia. Um, and then there's ApoE3 which is the most common one and is pretty much neutral. So gotcha. it doesn't increase your risk or decrease your risk. So you're any combination of those, of those. Do you, three do you have any idea why the, these variants are, are, are t- uh, named two, three, and four instead of one, two, and three? Like, yeah. I what happened think to I one? Did. I think I did <laughs> look that up um, before and I don't know off the top of my head. Um, but I'm going to ask Google right now. Why just, isn't just... there an APO E1? I mean, who knows? Um, yeah. Well, it's it's like we said, it's it's good that uh, it's not solely determined by our genetics. And it is, um, you know, certainly, like you said, in the past, you might not have wanted to even know you 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 know you had yeah, the you possibility of, of I, two fours yeah that's what i tell yeah. patients like if there's something that we could find out that you can do absolutely nothing about but just sit there with knowing that you're at increased risk of blank i i mean that does not give there's no benefit there but there's very few things that you can't impact to some degree with um right. your lifestyle and this is one where that thought process has to completely change because you're not destined to Alzheimer's disease. If you have ApoE4, you're at greater risk, which makes it that much more important to mitigate your modifiable risk factors. So a good analogy might be cardiovascular disease is, you know, there are certain genetic um, kind of proclivities that cause you to have a higher risk of obviously cardiovascular disease, most specifically, you know, uh, uh, dyslipidemia or, or, you know, blood mm-hmm. lipid I- issues, but, you know, heck you, you now we, we, um, don't gene- de- uh, uh, we don't genetically test for those necessarily because there are biomarkers like your LDL level, let's say that we can use, but, um, you don't have the biomarkers, uh, for, Alzheimer's and dementia that you have for cardiovascular disease. So therefore the genetic testing becomes somewhat more important in determining how at risk you might be and therefore how focused you should be on um, kind of controlling your risk factors. Right. Yep. Um, So there's, um, it's interesting. A lot of the information we will be talking about is is coming from the, the Lancet commission. So the Lancet is, uh, kind of the equivalent to uh, in the Americas, the, the Journal of the American Medical Association. So very prestigious uh, medical journal uh, published in the UK. There's a commission that um, has been looking um, at these modifiable risk factors um, since 2017. It's a panel of doctors, epidemiologists, public health experts, and they're looking at hundreds of different types of study to uh, studies to identify risk factors. They initially uh, identified nine, which we'll talk about high blood pressure, lower education levels, impaired hearing, smoking, obesity, depression, 
physical inactivity, diabetes, and low levels of social contact. And then in 2020, they added three more, excessive alcohol consumption, traumatic brain injuries, and air pollution. Um, and they calculated that 40% of dementia cases worldwide could theoretically be prevented or delayed if those factors were eliminated. Now, you know, that's a, in a perfect world. Yeah, but that's but substantial. Still a big number. And what that implies, I, I, I think, um, you know, someone may, 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 may tell me my logic is wrong here, but I think what that implies is any individual person could potentially reduce their risk by 40% by controlling those risk right. factors. Right. Yep. Which is, which on an individual basis is a pretty big number, particularly if you're in one of those genetic, um, um, you know, po mm -hmm. kind of populations. So, and, and so what they've done is, is they've kind of separated those risk factors uh, by, by um, you know, where in, in your lifespan you are. Um, and I think what's interesting, and, and again, I'd use the, the analogy to cardiovascular disease, is that um, similar to cardiovascular disease, it appears that Alzheimer's and dementia is something that takes a long time, obviously, to develop. And its roots may go back to, you know, when literally potentially childhood or mm -hmm. certainly early to mid-life let's say, adulthood. Um, so it speaks to why, you know, in your, you know, in your 20s, let's say, or even um, as a parent, you might want to have your, your kids tested for genetically tested for. Right. And just to know. <clears throat> to know. Yeah. yeah. And I just think that'll be become more the norm to have your kids tested just so you're aware of what, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, they, the they flip side to that is kind of something that I often will talk to patients about. So let's say we find in their labs that they have um, high cholesterol and we need to work on that. Or we find that their, you know, insulin levels are high and we're worried about, you know, progressing to prediabetes or they have prediabetes and we're worrying about progressive progressing to diabetes or we have diabetes and we're trying to, you know, control that as best as we can. Um, the, the, in addition to medications when they're needed, the treatment to help control all of these things is the same as this gotcha. <laughs> for the most part. You know what I mean? So yep. usually when I'm like, okay, your cholesterol levels are a little bit high. We don't need to do medication, but they're higher than we want them. And, you know, this and this um, is too high. And you're, you know, we'd want to try to lose weight and it's like a little overwhelming. But hey, guess what? The, the, what you need to do to, for all of these things is exactly the same. Um, so that's the positive. It's like, you know, you need to make sure you're sleeping well. You need to make sure you're eating, you know, whole food, plant-based kind of diet. You want to minimize processed foods and saturated fats and you, um, need to exercise and this is the, you know, how you want to exercise. And, um, so a lot of that is the same as this. Yep, exactly. So it's great to see that crossover there. So let, we're going to take this again, through kind of chronologically in someone's life. So beginning in early life, uh, the only risk factor that's kind of, uh, you know, they've been able to identify that with an early life connection is, is education. So mm -hmm. talk, to, talk to us a little bit about, about how that um, is correlated. Well, this is always one that, you know, through like medical school at first when you're learning about different diseases and you learn about risk factors for different diseases and you hear low 
um, education levels and low socioeconomic statuses are like at first, well, how does that make sense? And now it's obvious, um, fast forward 10 years. Cause it's like, well, if you don't, if you're not educated, um, and you're not, you're not raised in an environment where this is the, this is, this is common knowledge and, or you're not raised in an environment where you have access to, um, you know, healthy foods and that sort of stuff, then you're never going to get the tools that you need later on in life. So higher childhood education levels and lifelong higher education levels reduce dementia risk and um, suggest overall cognitive ability increases with education before reaching a plateau in late adolescence when brain reaches greatest plasticity. So I usually tell people too, um, like your brain is still developing through your twenties. And there are lots of studies out there to show that you really shouldn't make any huge life decisions in your twenties, like (laughs) huge career changes and, you know, jumping ship and, you know, doing anything too dramatic because you are not your, your choosing your major in college. How's that? (laughs) exactly like like you do that when you're 18 and it's crazy because you don't even know you're not you're not fully developed yet your brain is still developing um so same kind of thing here so you've got a you reach a place where your your brain has kind of the the greatest plasticity and you're able to um kind of get the most from those education levels in your your younger years um so it kind of suggests that's that cognitive stimulation is more important earlier in life. Um, and then mostly because the, then those things kind of stick at that point. So not that you can't change, but a lot of, uh, a, a lot of like we're born with our personality and that doesn't change a ton. There's a little bit of room for movement there through, you know, nature, v- nurture, but a lot of your, a lot of your personality is fixed. Mm-hmm. And similarly, a lot of what you gain in these, I think foundational, um, parts of yourself develop and then it kind of plateau. And that's what the studies are showing. Same kind of thing. So the education is important early in life um, as opposed to as you get, get older, it doesn't play as, as big of a role. Bigger role. Yep. That makes sense. Um, moving on to midlife. Now this is one near and dear to my heart because I have been diagnosed with hearing loss <laughs> And um, then recommended that I get hearing aids, but I've been resisting that uh, because that is the uh, a very, very objective sign that I am just over the hill uh, <laughs> and need to be put out to pasture, so to speak. But at, at any rate, um, it's 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 pretty um, it's pretty kind of, um, you know, black and white. Um, there was a cross sectional study of almost sixty five hundred individuals um, um, designed to be relatively representative of the U.S. population. The mean age was uh, almost 60 years old, and they found a decrease in cognition with every 10 decibel reduction in hearing, which isn't mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and and, it, and it, they even found it below what they say is a critical threshold um, so that some subclinical levels of hearing impairment, which is below 25 decibels of hearing impairment, were significantly related to lower cognition. Um, but they said that, um, though the, in a, in another study, this is a separate study, a 25 year perspective study of almost 4,000 people age 65 years or older found increased dementia incidence in those with self-reported hearing problems, except in those using hearing aids. Mm -hmm. So, and I, and I remember being in, 
one of um, I've seen a couple of different doctors around this thing, um, but one of their offices and it talked about the fact that when you don't hear well, your brain has to work hard or harder because it's trying to understand these, particularly when you're trying to listen to, you know, language, let's say Um, it has to work hard to, to comprehend that. Right. Yep. And the brain gets tired of doing yep. that um, yep. over time. So maybe that will get me to change my, <laughs> my resistance my, to a my hearing stance. aid. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Yep. And so. they're very low profile these days. And I know. I know. That's very vain to um, <laughs> hey, be I've been, I've been accused of, of, of having some vanity. <laughs> this You're not the first one. <laughs> Moving on. In the whole so, time. The next thing in midlife, um, TBI, so traumatic brain injuries, head injuries, um, significantly increase the risk of dementia. So this is something I always think about when you think about like your kids in sports um, and kids who play sports as they get older um, or do high risk activities um, because there's a cohort study of almost 29,000 adults with concussions found that the risk of dementia doubled with one in six developing dementia over the next three to three to nine years. Um, And then interestingly, those taking statins. So statins are the medications that help decrease your bad LDL type cholesterol. Those taking statins had a 13% reduced risk of dementia compared to those who are statin free. So further randomized controlled trials um, might show statins would help mitigate those with injury related brain swelling, oxidative stress and amyloid protein buildup and inflammation. Um, If you've got someone who's had a history of a pretty significant concussion, I mean, I see people who are on their third um, and uh, concussions don't just happen because you're on a football field and you're slamming into other you know, big football players, they can happen because something falls on your head. They can happen because, you know, someone slips and falls. Um, I have a patient who got a, a nasty concussion from, um, I don't even know exactly what it was because he works on a farm, but something, a really heavy piece of metal fell on his head, like right down on his head. <clears throat> so something as simple as that yeah. um, can cause a concussion. And there's pretty substantial increased risk of developing dementia. Um, but really interesting that those statins can help mitigate that that risk. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't say that, A, if you got a concussion, let's put you on a statin. But if you got a concussion and your cholesterol levels are high, then it's kind of like no brainer. No, no pun intended. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, uh, next one is interesting, uh, hypertension. So um, persistent midlife hypertension is definitely associated with increased risk of late life dementia. Um and um, and it, it, I remember listening to a podcast um, on a uh, theory of a model of Alzheimer's and dementia, which posited that um, the root cause was uh, a lack of energy to the brain caused by a lack of blood flow, uh, which in part can be caused by hypertension as the arteries harden um, and therefore... Um, heart has to pump harder to get uh, mm-hmm. blood through the ar- arteries and your blood pressure goes up 
and that causes damage in those little capillaries in the brain causes, you know, very, very micro, um, I don't want to call them strokes because it's really not stroke, but, mm-hmm. but maybe um, uh, micro um, bleeds, so to right. speak, but very, very microscopically. But bottom line is that less blood flow means um, you can't get oxygen to those neurons. And when you have any organ that is suffering from a lack of energy, it's going to atrophy to some extent. Right. And that is a really interesting um, potential root cause. And it would make sense that then hypertension would be positively associated with, um, uh, with, with dementia. Yep. For sure. And as a plug for primary care, I usually tell um, patients in my mind, there's no excuse to not have controlled blood pressure because, um, even if you have been diagnosed with high blood pressure and like, yes, we've optimized your lifestyle stuff and you're still kind of stuck with high blood pressure. We have so many medications, so many different options um, to keep your blood pressure in the completely normal range um, that there's really few instances where um, I would find it to be acceptable for your blood pressure not to be controlled. So, but in order to get that. When we say controlled, it's, it's like at 120 or below. Um, around 120 over 80, 120 yeah. over 80. Yeah. I mean, we've kind of gone up a little bit on, on, um, on our, how comfortable we are with levels a little bit higher than that, just because of what studies show is actually, you know, not as, you don't have to be quite as tight and people who are older, we are a little bit more flexible, but in general, that 120 over 80 is, is usually the goal. And yeah. a lot of people, um, you know, they start a blood pressure medication, but then they don't see their doctor again for a year. And we have no idea how exactly you're going to respond. And we almost always start low and slow because the lowest effective dose is the ideal dose. And we don't want to overdo it, but almost certainly your doctor, once they start you on a blood pressure medication, tells you to follow up in a couple of weeks or a month. Um, And if you don't do that, then a year might go by and we realize like that medication wasn't, wasn't doing it for you. Um, so definitely that's something that you're not stuck with high blood pressure. You might be stuck with hypertension that's controlled with medication. Um, but you guys got to figure out what the, what the right medication is for you. And as with all of these, they, they're a crossover. So if you're controlling hypertension and it's beneficial from a cognitive perspective it's obviously beneficial from a cardiovascular perspective as, as well from a metabolic perspective from i mean yeah everything across everything okay so so talk to me about alcohol and, and don't tell me that I, I have to give up wine please i hate talking about alcohol with people because um at the end of the day any amount is toxic right there is no it like, is a poison the amount yeah yeah and it is related to and, and found a pretty strong relation to a lot of different, obviously, negative health outcomes. And Alzheimer's dementia is one of the big ones. So there's a lot of evidence emerging on its relationship with uh, alcohol's relationship with cognition and dementia um, from all kinds of different types of studies. Um, so there, there is a longitudinal study, five years 31 million people admitted to the hospital. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. Um, Found alcohol use disorders. And and what we mean by that is harmful use or dependence on alcohol associated uh, were associated with increased dementia risk calculated um, separately for men and women. 
So the relationship of dementia with alcohol use disorders was clear in the earlier onset dementia. So those who are diagnosed at uh, less than 65 years of age, in which um, 56% had an alcohol use disorder noted in their records. Those So yep. um, over half of people diagnosed with early onset dementia, meaning you're diagnosed at less than 65, um, had alcohol use disorder somewhere in their medical records. So, um, right. And, and clearly less than 56% of all the population had alcohol use disorder. So right. disproportionate and, number. And then uh, another review that incorporated 45 different studies of light to moderate drinking um, using different definitions reported a reduced risk of dementia compared uh-huh. with not drinking. Uh-huh. Um, but risk was not reported separately for men versus women. Um, and drinking less than 21 units of alcohol per week might be associated with a lower risk of dementia. But I usually caution people with all this because we saw what happened with the um, alcohol's protective, uh, you know, for heart disease at, you know, one or two glasses of wine a week that came out. And then all of that was, was found to be incorrect. Um, Not too long after when you look at this and you see a 56% increase in risk of early onset or 56% of people with early onset dementia had alcohol use disorder. And people are like, well, I don't have an alcohol problem. Um, I, I drink in moderation. What's defined as alcohol use disorder is any more than one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men. And you can't save up your drinks um, because binge drinking is considered, I, I want to say, any more than three in a, in a time frame. Um, so think about how many people <laughs> would technically, who would never think that they have an alcohol quote unquote problem, would classify under this definition um, of an alcohol use problem. Okay. Okay. You know what well, I mean? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And it, it is, I, I, that, that logic makes perfect sense. So the next one we have to talk about um, for a midlife uh, risk factor is obesity, um, which doesn't, you know, kind of logically connect necessarily to the working of the brain. Um, but, um, and who knows what the causal factors are, but um but it's, it's definitely correlated. Um, so in, in a couple of these studies, so particularly, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the typical way to measure obesity is body mass index, which isn't a perfect measurement. If you're, you know, really muscular, you could have a BMI that puts you in the obese range and, and you're right. definitely not, not fat, so to speak, uh, or have too much, uh, fat accumulation. But, um, that uh, this this uh, review that I'm looking at now uh, was uh, looked at 19 studies, including, you know, over half a million people between the ages of 35 and 65 years old. They followed them for up to 42 years, which is a tremendous amount of yeah. time to be, be following up. Um, and um, it definitely reported that obesity, meaning a BMI over 30, was uh, associated with late life dementia, but um, but just being overweight with a BMI of over twenty uh, between twenty five and thirty was was not. Um, and then in another kind of what they call meta analysis, so just an analysis of the, uh, previous studies, 
from um, 1.3 million adults. So another large sample um, uh, definitely noted that higher body mass um, uh, measured before preclinical dementia was associated with increased um, dementia risk. Not a huge increase in risk, but definitely, you know, statistically significant. So so the next group is the later in life stuff. Uh, And we can kind of kind of quickly go go through these. Some of these are are kind of more uh, logical than than some of the the previous ones. Um, Smoking um, is obviously um, something that is going to increase your risk of um, dementia for all kinds of different reasons. But it's essentially what smoking does is, yes, it um, brings in carcinogens to your lungs when you breathe it in. Um, but it also has a profound effect on your arteries, all, you know, big arteries and small arteries and arteries are what feed, um, the different tissues, including our brain with, uh, oxygen from our blood. So there's good information, good data out there, um, that smokers are at higher risk of dementia compared to non-smokers, um, and at higher risk of premature death before, um, the age at which they might have developed dementia. So we may be missing some of them. Um, and that could introduce some bias and uncertainty, you know, between the risk. Um, but stopping smoking, even if you're older, reduces this risk significantly. So a lot of people probably feel like, well, I've been smoking for this long, what's the point? Um, but you've probably seen all those charts that show you what happened a week after, a month after, a year after you stop smoking and all the different things that get better. And um, your risk of dementia also substantially decreases um over over the four to eight even four to eight years yeah that's great news i wouldn't have suspected that at all um depression is positively correlated with dementia it kind of makes sense but um there's also uh kind of a a risk of reverse causation um you know as as people um, become afflicted with alzheimer's and dementia it may increase the amount of uh, their depressive s- uh, symptoms. So tough to tough to to uh, kind of ferret out which in which direction the causality arrow uh, goes right. in that in that case. Right. Um, the social contact is another big one um, that we hear about a lot, and it has become a little bit more common in evaluating people, like whether it's for their yearly exam. Um, you know, you talk about diet, exercise, sleep, mental health, and part of that is also like what's your kind of social network like and social contact. So, social contact is now um, a protective factor. So it enhances cognition reserve and encourages beneficial behaviors. Um, But in isolation might also occur as part of the dementia prodrome. So isolation negatively impacts our overall health and your risk of dementia, but social contact and interaction with people positively impacts it. Um, So most people mid and later life are married. I don't know. I don't actually know what the stats are these days. Um, But there are people who are divorced who aren't remarried and or are widowed um that there's been a lot of um studies on that those people do not fare as positively when it comes to health outcomes in general but also increases your risk of um, dementia yeah and that's similar to the next one i'm talking going to talk about activity um so staying active particularly later in life um Mm -hmm. so is is similar to social contact is just associated with with having a longer life flat out. So some of these blue zone uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, communities, uh, definitely in Japan or uh, Sardinia, uh, definitely mm-hmm. um, have those two things in, in common. Yep. Uh, last two. Yeah, just a couple, well, a couple more. So activity. Um, this one is obvious, right? We always talk about exercise and improves all sorts of different things. Cardiovascular health. If it's something that's linked to your cardiovascular health, it can similarly be linked to your risk for dementia because the factors at play are similar. Um, again, you know, risk of decreased blood flow to the brain. Um, I think in this situation, activity, lack of activity can increase your risk, but more so, um, activity, is associated with reduced risk. So think of this one more as t- you can exercise and, a, and an added benefit is it decreases your risk of dementia. So there's a longitudinal observational study um, of one to 21 years that duration that showed exercise to be associated with reduced risk of dementia. Um, so at least weekly, midlife, moderate to vigorous activity uh, was associated with reduced dementia risk over the 25 year follow-up period. Uh, now, the next one, air pollution, I'm not sure if that's a modifiable risk behavior other than moving okay. out of the city, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, that is definitely associated with uh, higher levels of, of uh, dementia and other things like cardiovascular disease and uh, yeah, uh, lung more, cancer and what have you. more about that, about um, air pollution and its negative impacts on all sorts of things because of particulate, because um, there's a certain level of which the particulate matter in pollution can actually get into your lungs and um, thereby yeah, the, the other size tool. of it matters, mm-hmm. right? The smaller yeah. it is, the, the deeper it goes into your lungs. Yeah. yeah. And they get filtered out. And then the, the, the well, actually next to the last one, because we have a, we have a 13th one that just came out. So diabetes um, mm-hmm. for sure. And that's, that's just a, a risk factor in so many diseases, but, but, the, the 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 relative risk factor is pretty high. I, I want to say in the in the studies that they were were um, looking at, it was like uh, 1.6 or so. So, mm-hmm. a 60% increase in uh, your risk of developing dementia if you've got diabetes. Oh. Um, now, I don't know if um, oh, and there is one note to that. Um, one meta-analysis of cohort studies of diabetes is, diabetes reported that cross-sectionally people with diabetes taking metformin had a lower prevalence of cognitive impairment. Right. Yep. So um, I know we've talked about metformin before as kind of a you know life extension uh, molecule right. type of thing, um, but I think we've come down on the on the the uh, the side of okay, if you don't have diabetes, don't take it. You know, kind Correct. of. To, to prolong life because yeah. that that indication is is kind of uh, that that proof is not not out there at all and it could have some some bad side effects in terms of your ability to build muscle mass and what have you but you've got diabetes um, and you can tolerate metformin you should you should definitely take it yeah. and then the last one I know we've talked to, <laughs> gone through a lot of these here um, was it was it an interesting Vision. one yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, so this was recently published in the, um, a neurology journal, JAMA Neurology, um, and it showed that, um, 
they used health and uh, data from the health and retirement study, and they estimated that 1.8% of Alzheimer's dementia, or about 100,000 cases, could have been prevented with um, healthy vision. So as your vision deteriorates, um, for whatever reason, but as you age, usually you develop cataracts and that sort of thing. It impairs your vision, get blurry vision, and there's kind of like long standing, um, slowly progressive effects from that. And with people, you usually notice an acute change in your vision. Like if you have a retinal detachment, it just goes from fine to not fine. But these slow, gradual vision impairments that you kind of don't necessarily make you go, oh, you know, I need to go see somebody for my vision. Um, and you go years and years without eye exams can um, definitely shown to increase your risk of dementia, Alzheimer's dementia. Right, right. So go get your glasses, go get your cornea replaced if you need to, go get your cardi- <laughs> just get an, cataracts just get an eye, done. Get an eye exam. <laughs> or an eye exam, yeah, let's, let's start with there. Okay, so I think we've got across 13 different risk factors. Now, the great thing about it is all of these affect all kinds of other bodily you know, functions mm-hmm. of, yeah. and, and, and all sorts of components of, of health span in general. So to the extent that, that 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 you're lowering it for the for, uh, on the basis of you know uh, so, some other reason, then it's also going to help you in in terms of Alzheimer's and dementia, kind of across uh, the board. Yep. And as we said at the beginning, uh, it's estimated that forty um, percent or more of all um, Alzheimer's and dementia cases could be eliminated if we were kind of hitting on all cylinders on all these things. So right. Yep. That's that is reason for hope. So even if yeah. we're not making progress on the, uh, on the drug front. So, okay. Well, this was kind of went, went a little longer than we thought it would, but um, it's an important subject and we wanted to cover it adequately. So I think, uh, I think we've done that. Yeah. Great. Sure did. Great. Okay. I'll let you get back to your busy day um, <laughs> and I'll get back to my less busy day. How's that? <laughs> All right. Okay. Take care. Love you. Bye. Thanks again for listening. You can visit the doctorandad.com. That's spelled T-H-E-D-R-A-N-D-D-A-D.com for show notes to any of our podcasts, as well as other useful info on extending health span. Now the legal disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Use of this information in show notes is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should not, should not disregard or delay taking medical advice or treatment for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professional for any such conditions. We also want you to know that we take no funding from any product or service that may be mentioned on the Doctor and Dad podcast.